All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Thanks very much for coming out now as we move into the dark, dark evenings of winter here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, this evening's lecture is the first of a three-part series. It was going to be one lecture that <clears throat> then led to other ones, but it kept growing and growing. So it's a transvaluation of all values. Tonight's section is called You Are Not a Slave. The next section will be called Play Not Work, and then we'll finish with Joy Not Fear. But the first lecture tonight, and these are all related, they're basically one big long lecture. Uh, the first lecture tonight is You Are Not a Slave. I wanted you all to repeat this to yourselves about a thousand times. You are not a slave. Actually, we pretty much are slaves in our minds. This is the problem. We're not actually slaves anymore. Statistically, from history, we were slaves. However, we're not anymore physically, materially, but intellectually, mentally, our outlook is still incredibly shaped by our cultural experience of you know, basically 10,000 years of slavery. And so this is what I want to try and look at, is the, is the patterns of thinking that have influenced us this way, where they come from, how they shape us, and then how we can start working through this. I mean, if you go back in history, the earliest law code that we have is from Sumer. It's even older than Hammurabi's code. It's from Sumer. And it's, I believe it's called the Sumer Code. Um, and it includes rules on slavery. If you look at Egyptian uh, carvings, writings, uh, they have images of slavery. If you read the Old Testament, slavery very popular in the Old Testament. Lots of rules and laws about slavery. The institution of enslaving human beings, I hate to say it, goes back as far as we can track human beings. Um, so it seems to be a popular idea. We seem to enjoy it immensely. Um, and so what has happened <clears throat> over generations and generations and generations, literally thousands of years, as far back as we can go in the archaeological record, we find evidence of people being enslaved. So this pattern of enslavement was sort of developed in cultures. Then as culture develops, you look at something like the Roman Empire, uh, Egyptian empires, as culture develops, becomes more sophisticated, what you end up getting is a lot more slaves, even more slaves. And this is because in the ancient world, agriculture in particular, and everything else in general, was labor intensive. All power was human power, occasionally horsepower. They invented a few kinds of primitive paddle wheels, sure. Basically, all your power was human power. So if you wanted to do something, you used humans. If you wanted to do a lot of things, you had to use a lot of humans. The expensive way to do this is to hire humans. Hiring humans is always expensive. The cheap way to do it is capture them, enslave them, imprison them, in some way limit their capacity to make free decisions so that you can force them to do the shit you don't want to do, the slave. And so at times in the Roman Empire, Above half the population was slaves. And we're talking of a spectacular density of slavery. And it was everywhere. It wasn't, you know, most of it, of course, is in mining, incredibly dangerous in the fields. But also a lot of people in the cities were slaves. All the trades had people who were slaves in them. <clears throat> and so all kinds of systems in our culture developed out of this. Whole mindsets developed out of this. And unfortunately, we inherited them. We, we've, we've grown culturally used to having these institutions and systems around us. Um, and they go all the way until you get to, say, medieval Europe, and we begin to look towards the modern world, and things begin to shift a little bit. What you have besides slaves, you also have things called serfs. This is, we we're familiar with this from Russia, but it was an institution that was in other places. And serfdom wasn't exactly slavery, but it limited, you couldn't leave where you were born. It, basically, it was slavery. It had a lot of the elements of slavery without being totally owned. And then you had something like a peasant who, again, not exactly a slave, but the restrictions were so heavy that it was a near form of slavery. On top of this, you have to remember that all these people, or, or most of them, would be illiterate. 
often illegal for them to receive education. It wasn't just that they couldn't learn to read, it's that they were not allowed to learn to read. So you had physical bondage, you had the threat of physical violence to keep people in bondage, you had whole institutions to keep them where they were, but also to keep the mind. This is important to note, it wasn't just about physical incarceration or limitation, it was about keeping the mindset so that it could not imagine alternatives. It could not read about possibilities. All, so early censorship, early destruction of printing presses, early limitations on educational institutions, a lot of this is designed to prevent the lower classes, read peasants, serfs, and slaves, from receiving any kind of access to the kind of information and material thinking opportunities that would allow them to liberate their minds, much less their bodies. So it's a, it's a double track. You keep the body enslaved and you keep the mind enslaved. You have to do both. And so as, as these institutions start to change, and as we start to overthrow things, you know, French Revolution is often, you know, looked at as one of the big revolutions in history, and as it was, you start getting repressed movements against slavery all over Europe, in fact, all over the world at various times. Um, what happens is not the overthrow of slavery, unfortunately. What happens is people who had inherited the mindset that uh, they don't want to be slaves, they don't want to be in these hierarchical relationships where legal restrictions are placed on them by people over, that have power over them. They didn't say, let's get rid of that. What they said is, I want to be the master. I want to throw off my shackles and shackle somebody else. We always want to shackle somebody else. Now this is the dream of the slave. This is the problem. So the, the notion of freeing yourself so that you can master somebody else is the slave dream. Because all the slave knows is having been mastered. And if you're a slave, it's much better to be the master than the slave. So that's good. But it really doesn't escape the mindset, this, this dominance, this hierarchical uh, physical repression. And, and the clearest form that I can think of this, which is just, just incredible and it's true, but before the Civil War, there was a movement to convince the American slaves to say, hey, why don't you go back to Africa? The notion that they had been born and raised in America for hundreds of years didn't seem to bother people at this point. But hey, why don't you go back to Africa? So it was an actual movement that did this. And so they took groups of slaves and transported them to Liberia, where these former slaves, these freed slaves, immediately set up plantations and enslaved the local population. And it's like, on one hand, it's like, oh, really? Oh, it's so, I just, the, the example is so, so human. And yet so depressing, because <laughs> it's like, what? but what else would you do? Because what else do you know? Well, we know it was bad to be slaves, and it looked good to have a master, and plantations look nice. We want to be in the house, so if we're in the house, we've got to enslave people and put them to work on the plantation. And so Liberian history is this war between the transplanted African-Americans who set up this hierarchical repressive slave society and the native, the local population, the tribes who kept fighting back against that. And this tiny minority of former African slaves were able to maintain power in Liberia for, for more or less until the 80s, I think. You know, if not today, I'm, they're, still over, they're still over more influential than they should be by population. So that's, that's, but that's how strong uh, influences these sorts of institutions have on our thinking. This is what we're used to. If I'm not a slave, then I'm a master. If I'm not a master, I'm a slave. Um, and we, we need to learn to break out of that. And so, so that's what I want to focus on today, is some of the thought patterns that we have that indicate that we're not free people, um, but that we've in fact imbibed this, this slave mentality even though we're not slaves. We're not literally slaves. We're, we're mentally slaves. And I want to talk about Nietzsche here because Nietzsche has a great work called The Genealogy of Morals. And I think he gets it half right because he really criticizes the slave mentality and he outlines it pretty damn well in there. 
Um, but he then, he contrasted a lot with the master mentality. And I think, again, we really want to try and break that dialectic. And in a later work, he does break this dialectic, which we'll look at. But originally, he does it. So even in Nietzsche's thinking, it took him a while to get from the master-slave idea to something different. <clears throat> but first quote here, and this is the one that really matters, I would say. Uh, it's Protagoras. I, I love to use this quote every time. Because it's, man is the measure of all things. It actually meant you are the measure of all things. The, the accurate translation is you are the measure of all things. That's what he meant. If you look at the Timaeus uh, Platonic dialogue, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about this Protagoras idea. And they're not convinced it's a good one. Um, so this Plato is very suspicious of this concept. Um, I'm not suspicious of it at all. And this really, if you want to know the core value, is simply this. Value, as I mentioned on the first day, where do our values come from? They come from us. To be free means your values from you define the world. It's your world, you make it. Every way, in every aspect. It's yours, it comes from you. Um, so, things that drive me mad, uh, people talk about the price of things. They got a deal, they got a steal, they got... What, what that is, is you're saying someone out here and my society has set a value on an object, a dollar value, five dollars, a million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, it doesn't matter. And I've gotten it somehow through my negotiating prowess for a lesser value than those people said it had. So now I can brag because I have sort of cheated the cultural value system by achieving greater value than I should have been able to for a finite amount of money. At every step in this process, you're saying other people tell you what things are worth. This is just madness. <laughs> Step one to not being a slave is saying, no, I tell other people what things are worth. People don't tell me what things are worth. I tell other people what things are worth. If I say something is worthless, it's worthless. If I say something's worth a million dollars, it's worth a million dollars. Period. There's no other value. There's no other way to value things unless you want other people to tell you what things are valuable. Again, madness. That's the slave mind. Well, the master says that's worth something, so it must be worth something. The master says, I'm worthless, therefore I must be worthless. You're valuable because you say you're valuable. If you need somebody else to say you're valuable, to feel that you're valuable, you're in trouble. It's very human, by the way, but it's also very troubling. I believe we call it social media, um, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> it is the desire for other people to reflect back on me that I am good. No. No, just no. Other people cannot tell you you're good. Other people can tell you you're good. But that's, that's a disease. Um, it, it, it's, it's enslavement. Because it means when they tell you you're not good, ooh, now I have to feel bad about myself. And now I need to alter myself so that other people will tell me I'm good again. And so now I'm in this arms race with my perception of other people's perception of their perception of me, which is pretty simple. What could possibly go wrong in any of these steps? Right? This is, that, that's just, uh, no, this is madness. We know this is mad. On one hand, we can articulate it's madness. On the other hand, ooh, so hard to escape those pressures. But step one is, is, is the close from, quote from Protagoras. Man, you are the measure of all things. Not somebody else. Not some other institution. No, you. It's got to come from you. Um, I, I love this quote here from <clears throat> Beverly Nichols. It is the same when you're furnishing a house. You have only just enough money to buy a bed, a chair, a table, and a soup plate. You should buy none of these squalid objects. You should immediately pay the first installment on a Steinway Grand. 
Why? Because the aforesaid squalidities are essentials, and essentials have a peculiar, somehow or a peculiar way, somehow or other, of providing for themselves. Look after the pennies, and the pounds will look after themselves. That is the meanest, drabbest, little axum ever poised in the mind of youth. People who look after pennies deserve all they get. All they get is more pennies. Yeah, be careful. Be realistic, right? Be responsible. Count the pennies. Don't make a mistake. Right? Don't overstep your place. Know your limitations. All this advice that we get continuously is basically a way of saying, be small, keep that slave mindset in place. Don't think grand thoughts. Don't do something that blows up and fails. Don't make a mistake. Who's to say it's a mistake? Ah, they'll let you know when you make a mistake. <laughs> right? We all know this. But who's to say? Right? That's, that's one of the things that we're up against. It's, it's amazing. I was thinking of this in art, of course, this comes up. is a great quote here on art, value of art and all that. Um, this is a recent quote. I think this is from Forbes, maybe. He is America's most celebrated painter of the solitary realities of 20th century life. But Tuesday night at Christie's, Edward Hopper joined the unreality of today's art market when his 1929 painting Chop Suey sold for $91 million with fees, an auction high for the artist. The previous high for Hopper had been $40 million back in 2013, roughly $43.8 million with inflation. Everything you need to know about Edward Hopper is $91 million is more than $40 million, really $43 million adjusted for inflation. And notice it's the unreality. Somebody someplace decided to pay $90 million for an Edward Hopper. Right? And that's unreality. What a bizarre claim. The article is reporting that it just happened. And then they're saying it's unreal. You see how bizarre that is? Well, they're saying that because they cannot imagine. Someone has to be a fool, an idiot, to live in some fantasy land to pay $90 million for a hopper. So it must be unreal. That is the slave mind. It's also the slave mind to say the only thing I can say about a painting is that it's got a dollar figure attached to it. This is blind ignorance. I can't say, wow, I don't like the hopper because it just sold for $90 million and that will make me look like I'm some sort of backwoods hick. And if I can't say I really love the hopper because somebody might say, why? And then I'd be like, blah. Because <laughs> it's $90 million. See, that's not a very good reason at all. And so what this, I love this quote because it's encapsulated, I didn't edit this in any way, by the way, this is the, enti the entire quote encapsulates sort of our total and complete incapacity to deal with something like art, where the creators and the people who consume it make the value. They don't care what the hell other people think, is the whole point of it. This is, this is the, this, and so, so no one knows what to do with it. Edward Hopper didn't make it for $90 million. He probably would have happily made it for 90, by the way. He's probably like, yeah, I would like to have at least 10%. But no, uh, you know, but, but he made it. Somebody else said they loved it. Somebody else said they really love it. And somebody else paid a lot for it. A whole chain of people making the decision and going, no, yeah, I'm going for that. For whatever reason, crazy reasons. Could be even slave reasons to impress their neighbors. Oh, you got a Rothko? I got a Hopper. <laughs> right? So, so that, you know, just who knows why? But you can't say it's unreal when it's actually just reported that it happened. <laughs> the fact that you can't process it, that you can't get it in your mind, doesn't mean you dismiss it as, as being nonsense. 
You can say, that's outside my value system. I don't value it that much. That's great. But notice then it's you determining the value of the painting, not them. They're torn because they know the market sets the value that they don't understand, and but they want to believe in the market because otherwise they have to set the value. This is our problem. If we, don't, if we let somebody else set the value, then we're relieved of the obligation. We don't have to take responsibility for it ourselves. If we set the value for it, ah, well, we're in trouble now. So all the other people who have the hoppers, now they're in business. Because somebody can say, ooh, you have a hopper. And then, yeah, it just sold for 93 million. Somebody else just set a new value for me. See, it's, it's this weird loops of value setting. You have to break it. You just have to break it and say, I like this painting. I like this music. I like those shoes. Whatever it is that I like, it's good because I like it. By the way, and think, this goes all the way. People always talk about things like fiat money and gold-backed dollars. M money is valuable because you value it. Gold is valuable because you value it. If you do not value it, it is not valuable. The logic of the marketplace says the entirety, the whole of the community sets the value. This is mob thinking writ economic scale. I'm just a member of a blind mob making choices that add up in aggregate to determine the value of my community, culture, values, and the things I want. Great. I mean, if that's not the definition of like mob slavery, I absolutely do not know what it is. It's, 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 it's saying that, oh, I'll just let the average American determine the value of everything that has a monetary price to it, and I'll call that correct. No problem there. Um, and this goes, by the way, again, way back. So if you think of uh, the Athenian democracy was started in part by the reforms of Solon. So this is about 500 BC-ish. I should check that date, but we'll go 500 BC-ish. Um, and one of the key reforms he had is he had to say, look, free people, because they had slaves, they had free people, and they had the aristocracy. So he said, look, free people, no longer is it legal to sell yourself into slavery. Because it was really popular for people to sell themselves into slavery. And it was destroying the community. Because, of course, the aristocrats were taking all of the power because all of the free people kept selling themselves into slavery. And this was disruptive of the system. But this is how lightly, historically, we've tended to value our freedom. Um, people may be familiar with, with The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare. I put a quote in there. This is from the opening. The Duke there says, this is when Shylock is bringing the suit um, and he's that for, for the money that he's owed. And he's, the Duke says, Then is thy strange apparent cruelty, and where thou now exacts the penalty, which is a pound of this poor merchant's flesh. Thou wilt not only lose the forfeiture, but touched with human gentleness and love, forgive a moiety of the principal. What this means is the Duke is saying, Oh, well, surely. Yes, he did sign over that he would give a pound of his flesh if he couldn't pay. But surely, 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 you are not going to collect that, the Duke says to Shylock. And Shylock says, oh no, I want to collect my pound of flesh. For us, this is a moment of unimaginable human cruelty. For Shakespeare's time, they are transitioning. That was a dead standard contract. You used to be able to sell yourself into slavery, which people did. You used to be able to contract against being tortured or, or losing limbs. If I can't pay, you can chop my arm off. It was the joy of inflicting pain on somebody else that was the guarantee of getting your money back. That's the master-slave dialectic writ large. I've been kicked. So what I want to do is, given the opportunity, I want to kick somebody else. I've got pain. I want to pass the pain along. How do you break that? 
cross, the cross, how do you break that mentality? How do you break out of that hierarchical notion? Oh, when I get in charge, I'm going to tell people what to do. Of course, we'll make it nice. That's what we always think, of course. We'll make it nice. It'll be so much nicer when I'm in charge. As long as everybody does what I say, everything will go so much more smoothly. And, and if they don't do what I say, well, you know, we'll, we'll make changes. Right? We'll just fire people or do what, what has to be done. Um, and, and a great example, again, I mentioned uh, Nietzsche. This is a quote from Zarathustra there. How do you break out of this? This is how. Away from those fabulous songs that I lead you when I taught you the will is a creator. This is your will is the creator. All it was is a fragment, a riddle, a fearful chance until the creating will saith thereto, but this would I have it. Unto the creating will saith thereto, but this do I will it, thus shall I will it. But did it ever speak thus? And when doth this take place? Hath the will been unharnessed from its own folly? Hath the will become its own deliverer and joy bringer? Hath it unlearned the spirit of revenge and all teeth gnashing? And who hath taught it reconciliation with time? And something higher than all reconciliation. Something higher than all reconciliation must be the will, which is the will to power. But how doth that take place? Who hath taught to will backwards? Will backwards. So there's a couple of parts here. First is the notion of, thus I will it so. Man is the measure of all things. Why? Because I want it to be this way. Even things that you don't control. You have to take in and say, well, fine, I want it to be this way because that's the way the world is. And so instead of taking it as a punishment or being imposed on you, say, no, I want it to be this way. Thus, I will it so. The world is as I will it, insofar as it is possible for me to do so. The problem is, and this is what Nietzsche is driving at here, is we have this history we are the inheritors of an entire cultural system that goes back thousands of years, filled with all the perversities, troubles, triumphs, difficulties, and it's thrust upon us. How do we deal with that? How do we will backwards in time? Nietzsche's crazy, yet I think brilliant and insightful answer is to say, I want the history to be exactly as it was. Notice, we don't change history when we do this. We change what history means. This is the transvaluation of all values. We can look at history and go, oh, that's horrible and it's oppressive and it weighs me down and it disturbs me and uh, slave mentality. Or you can look at history and say, there it is. I want history to be just as it has been up to this very instant. And from now on, I will make it my own. Thus, I will it so. Not just for me, but for the world and all human history for all time. It's a small project. <laughs> just, you know, in your free time, start working on this. But quite seriously, this desire to just say, this is how it was, therefore that is how it should be and how I want it to have been. To make the value come from you. You decide what it means. You decide how it comes to you and most importantly, you decide how it's going to go into the future. And we struggle with this mightily. A couple more examples of my favorite. The, the picture there on the cover is of people in traffic. Um, and I, it just, it just, traffic is one of those things I never understand. I mean, I understand why it occurs. But if, if you get up in the morning in this major city and you're stuck in traffic, and you get up the next morning and you're stuck in traffic, and you get up the next morning and you're stuck in traffic, this is not a coincidence. <laughs> this is not a happenstance. Right? Sometimes you're going someplace, there's an accident, you're stuck in traffic. Yes, you embrace that, you say, great, that's what happens, it's going to take me a little longer, fine. But if it happens every single day, and you complain about it, nah, slave mind, 
And I look at traffic, which seems to exist in the world inexplicably, and I go, why? Why would someone decide voluntarily to sit there? It's not like it's a surprise that there's traffic on I-5 in Seattle on weekdays. This is not a surprise. It's a fact of like, it's like gravity. It's like waking up and discovering gravity. Oh, my shit's on the floor. <laughs> right? I mean, traffic on I-5 in Seattle is sort of the physical law of the universe. And yet, people get up and like, oh, shit, I can't believe it. I'm stuck in traffic. I'm running late. Well, no, you're not running. You're, 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 yeah. What the hell are you thinking? But what's happened is people have said, I have to be here. And once you said that, you're in the slave mind. Anytime you say, I have to, you're wrong. You do not have to do anything. Step one. Thus, I will it so. I like my job. I like my house. There's some traffic between here and there. I'm just going to make myself a screwdriver, have a little drink on the way to work, <laughs> listen to some music. Life is great. Couldn't be happier. Knock yourself out. Then great. I'm happy. Got the job I like. Live in the house I like. Spend some time drinking on the freeway. Hey, listen to my tunes. That's a win. Thus I will it so. But if you sit there and oh, or, uh, uh, ask yourself, this is rule number one I want you to really think about, you know, or two, I guess, I don't know how, what rule we're on. One, you know, value comes from you, therefore you do not have to do anything. Think about how often you hear yourself saying that. Well, I have to. I have to. I have to. It's got to. I must. It's, ah. See, what we're really doing is we're abrogating responsibility. We're trying to let ourselves off the hook. Well, I don't really want to, which might be a lie. We might actually really want to do it. And we're just telling people we have to do it. Because otherwise, for, for you know, social reasons, sometimes, oh, well, you know, I'd love to go to the party, but I have to do this other thing. Which is to say, I would rather kill myself than go to that party, so I'm going to sit over here and pound my head in the sand, right? Just whatever it is, but we use the have to. That's, that's, that's our big excuse. Um, all the reasons we, we have to think about how often you tell yourself that. Just stop telling yourself that. You do not have to do anything. The belief that you do have to do something is your slave mind because we've been told that for our entire lives. You have to go to school. Look at the statistics. A lot of kids do not go to school. It's just a, it's just a statistical fact. Lots of kids don't go to school. They never do. You do not have to go to school. You have to clean your room. Ooh, I've seen kids' rooms. Sometimes they aren't clean. Right? You must, you must, you have to. Now, what's clear here when we're kids is we're in a power relationship. It's not really our faults. And so, so it, it sort of gets ingrained in us. The problem is at some point we should realize like, hey, wait a second. Do I really have to do this? Is it really, is it really necessary? And I would like to say the universal answer to that is no. It is never necessary. And then besides the have to, we have the I can't. You can't do this, you mustn't do that, you can't do that, don't do that, don't touch that, don't pick that up, right? I watch parents with kids, and, and kids are just trying shit, right? So it's, it's reasonable on one hand. Uh, uh, but what they said, no, 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 don't, don't, no, down, down, stop, st no, don't, can't, can't stop that, right? It's just this don't stop, can't. And so we internalize this. And so, oh, I can't do that. Ah. If any human being has ever been able to do something, there's a chance you could do it. Good, bad, indifferent. And when you say, I can't, what you really are saying is either I'm unwilling to try, i.e., I'm a coward. 
slave mentality, keep myself small, keep myself down. Or I don't want to do it. Which is to say, rather than just saying, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't wish to, responsibility, oh, I can't do that. I really can't do that. And you see this any time that people get put in binds between our desires, what our culture wants, what we want, and we shop around for the don'ts and the have-tos that we can articulate in a way so that we can get what we want and do it the way we want it, while the entire time covering it with a justification of mustn'ts and have-tos. This is, this is our goal, as far as I can tell, because then we're able to articulate our desires, but we never have to express them as, no, that's just because I want it that way. Um, and you see, like I said, anytime you see people under tension, you'll see this. So uh, um, if, if you look at, so I love all our diet fads, right? All our diet fads are beautiful. Um, the fact that we don't know how to eat is just, it's just great. I mean, look, at, we, we, you're, you know your culture has lost a little bit of track of things when people no longer know how to eat. You would think it would be fundamental. It turns out we're just hopelessly lost. Um, and so that's okay, but it's just fascinating. And so if people will try and come up with this list of, don't eat this, right? We love that. On this diet, you, you don't eat on every other day. right? Every other day, it's the every other day fast. Don't, 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 don't. Or the diet is, well, you must eat, I don't know, whatever, uh, apple cider vinegar. Apple cider vinegar will cure everything. You must, you must, you have to, have to, have to have apple cider vinegar. And if you look at it, it's always just combinations of don't, 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 don'ts, and must, 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 must. <laughs> And so what people do is they shop around for some combination of those that they like. <laughs> and since we've got hundreds of, at least hundreds of options, they build the occasional fast. Um, uh, what the, well, God, there's a, I heard a name called a, oh shoot, it was a something Atarian. Oh, what was it, occasional Atarian? No. Yeah. Uh, uh, it yeah, yeah, it was where you're a vegan, but you occasionally eat meat. <laughs> and I thought that 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 was a that's a genius that's a genius term because it means I'm doing something I'm on a diet I'm following the rules and the rules are I can eat whatever I want whenever I want to but but I'm not going to call it that cuz that doesn't sound good right so notice what we don't tell people is, hey, eat whatever makes you feel good. You be the judge. Ah, because what do we know about people? We're craven, hopeless animals that left to our own devices <laughs> will just eat Twinkies and booze until we die of diabetes at 27. <laughs> right? This is our concept. Notice this is a slave evaluation of another bunch of slaves. These are, these, oh, these are just worthless people. If you leave them to their own devices, they're just going to do stupid shit. We've got to get them some rules. They need some rules. If people just, we know this, if people just eat what they want, the world is going to go to hell. They're going to poison themselves. They're going to die. We're going to die. It's going to be bad for everybody. So a whole list of no, 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 no's, and a whole list of yes, 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 you have to, have to, have to, must, 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 must. And then that'll fix it. Because look how good it's going now. <laughs> right? This system is working really, really well. It's, and, and, but it's, mad, it's just madness. But, part, but the, the undercurrent of this is the evaluation of other people as being essentially slave-like beasts. They can't control their passions. They can't eat in any kind of way that will make them healthy, and we certainly won't let other people decide what's good for them. We'll tell you what's good for you. And then we'll feel good, even though we don't do anything about you eating well, and generally we don't do that much good about us eating well. No, no, no. We can't have that. Lots of rules. Musts and can'ts. Musts and can'ts. And so this, so it's, it's, like I said, it's pervasive, so pervasive it's hard to even come up with examples of when it's not that way. Uh, another place to look 
it's, it's, you look, all these stories about learning um, and, and studying and practicing generally emphasize pain. Now, pain is very educational. I will grant you that. Potentially even necessarily educational because change is difficult and often painful. So I think there probably is, to a certain extent, some pain um, in everything when we're learning and growing. Sort of like, I, like trees sort of crack their bark as they grow. I never quite understand how that works, but it's, it's weird. But they just keep growing out and the bark gets bigger and bigger and it's, it's there. So when we grow, which I hope we are, you know, there's going to be some cracking. There's going to be a little pain. But does it have to be threats all the time? Does it have to be all pain? And I think as part of this, we really, truly, greatly undervalue inspiration. If you're a free person, you're looking for something that makes you want to do something. I want to be inspired. I want to be motivated by desire by joy, by striving, from my best instincts. And so when I search for those people or those places or those works of art that lift me up, that make me feel good, they go, that's see, you're learning, you're growing, you're changing, you're stretching, but not from pain, not because somebody hit you or threatened you or yelled at you, because your native instinct is to grow, to flourish, to be bigger and better. And so we can learn very effectively through inspiration. In fact, that's usually when we learn the best because it's so easy. Because we're just like, oh, you're just, you know, your world expands sort of almost without, it feels like you haven't done anything because it just, you, you see a painting or you hear some music or you read something or you talk to people, or you see something. It's like, wow, I just, that's where I want to be. That's the feel I want. I, now I get it. There's not that much pain there. But, but think like, if you look at our educational institutions, we have mandatory school, right? You have to go. It's a legal requirement. In theory and practice, it's very loose. But in practice, at least, you know, it is, it is a mandatory institution. Young people are incarcerated for, for a crime we haven't figured out yet. The crime of being born, I always think, must be why we have to incarcerate them in schools. And then people always say, oh, you know, why do African Americans do so poorly in school? And, and one of my guesses is, and they do, by the way, by every statistical measure, they do terribly in school. And I'm thinking that the African American experience with compulsory institutions in American history has been rather mixed. <laughs> Mostly really, really unpleasant. You enslaved us once. Okay. Are we going to let you enslave us twice? This compulsory institution you've laid out for us, ooh, we're not sure we're that excited about it. We have a somewhat freshish cultural memory that the last time you put us in chains, it wasn't that great for us. Is this really going to work out? Hmm, suspicious, very suspicious. But why does it have to be compulsory? Ah, because we don't trust the slaves. They won't get it right. Also, you can't make people suffer if it's not compulsory. Notice that. If it's not compulsory, then they've got to probably want to go of their own volition. And then you're going to have to change. It's going to have to be different. Right? And so we'd have to completely restructure it to make young people want to go as opposed to forcing them to go. But if they're forced to go, then you can do any damn thing you want to them. Ha, huh, it's great. Because <laughs> they're sort of enslaved for that period of time. And you don't have any responsibility. It's a wonderful system for slaves. Um, you know, so that's, these sorts of tensions are everywhere. And it doesn't bother us because we still have that mindset. We don't say, thus I will it so. I want it to be this way. If it's not the way I want it to be, well, I'm going to change it or not participate or revalue it or rethink it or come up with a different approach. But, I mean, again, a big project, though, because it's so ingrained in us. Again, like I said, just think, next time you hear somebody say, I have to or I can't, evaluate both of those. 
and go, is that true? Like I said, I'm, I'm like 99% of the time going to say, no, it's just probably not true. And then go from there, why are we using that language? Interrogate yourself or interrogate the other people, perhaps at a distance, in your mind. Why would they say, I can't or I must? What are they trying to cover? What are they trying to hide? What, what do they not want to face? For instance, this is why I love the quote from Beverly Nichols here. He doesn't say, go buy a grand piano because he's assuming you don't have the money to buy a grand piano. He's saying, put the first installment payment on a grand piano. That's a totally different thing. Because notice, people say, oh, I can't afford a grand piano. Oh, really? With the credit system we have in America today, you can't buy, you can buy damn near anything. Because we let you put things on installment, which is either a type of enslavement or the greatest trick of liberty ever in history. And it just varies dramatically. But if you want it, you can probably get it. Uh, two more examples of this. One, the other or another aspect of the slave mind is an unwillingness to commit. See, the trick of slavery is you don't have to commit because you're stuck. But if you say, I want a grand piano and I'll choose to make those payments, ah, you've decided that I value it and I'm going to do what's necessary to make that happen. And if I have to work an extra shift, or if I have to do something else that in other cases I might not want to do, then I'll do it. Happily. Because I've decided. Grand piano. That's a good thing. That's better than dishes, or a couch, or a chair, or anything else. We go, oh, wait a second. Really? Truly? And see, then now other people can make fun of you. And other people would. They'd say, oh, look, he doesn't have a couch. He's got a stupid grand piano, but he doesn't even have a couch. <laughs> it's just, what a fool. What a fool. Look at that. He can barely pay for it. He's going to get repossessed. Right? We know that's wrong. It's not really. I mean, what's he doing? What's he thinking? Ah, see, we, and we hear those voices in our mind all the time because we want other people from the outside to tell us we're making a good decision. And we know people are not going to tell us that's a good decision. We know that, right? Because they're, they're going to say, probably they're going to go, what the hell is wrong? You have no dishes. <laughs> Indeed, you may not have very much food. They're like, yeah, but I have whatever. I have a piano. I have a trip someplace. I have, a, I have this book. I have an experience. Got this bottle of wine. But whatever it was that, that caught your heart's desire, you said, no, I value it. I place the value on it. And even if everybody else says you're mad. And I also like the piano example because my friend Mike Orbeck, for years, lived on his own in Seattle in a tiny apartment tiny apartment, marginally employed. I mean, very marginally. He had three pianos, <laughs> which I just loved. I loved. What was in his apartment? Pianos. <laughs> he had a bed between the pianos. And I'm like, well, it's just madness. It's great. It's like the greatest thing ever. Very, very clear what he was into. Uh, pianos, by the way, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it, it was, it was not, it was not confusing uh, at, at all. And because he was in an apartment building, he really couldn't play them most of the time because it would drive everybody else crazy. So he had like pillows shoved into them, to, as like super dampers. So it was, it was, it was just crazy in every way, and beautiful, and 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 just wonderful. But notice, this is not, you know, what are you doing? You know, get a better job, do something, get a car, buy some food. Nah. Why? But you can only do that if the values are coming from you. Because we know we have the list of right decisions to make from the outside. 
and we know how we're supposed to make those decisions, and we're masters of figuring out what other people are going to say about the decisions that we make. When we're wrong, when we're right, quote-unquote wrong and right. Um, and so to defend ourselves, the last part of this, to defend ourselves against this, what we love are hierarchies. Now, hierarchies to me is the slave mind built into systems that are not actually slavery. So we don't have slavery, which is a really, really big development. I mean, historically speaking, this is great. Some slavery still exists in the world, but it's illegal everywhere in the world, at least in theory. That's a huge breakthrough. But we love hierarchies because it combines the best of the slave master dialectic in one big pile. So I can go to an institution, a college, a, 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 a job, someplace, and I can know that those people are below me, so I can kick them, and these people are above me, and so they can kick me. And it, Melville has a beautiful passage on this, I didn't have room to put it on here, in, in, in Moby Dick, where someone gets kicked, and he says, oh, you shouldn't take it too hard, because the captain kicks you, you kick me, I kick somebody else, the captain's wife kicks him, and it's the great cycle of kicks that is the universe. Right, The kicks just get passed around. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm like, well, yes and no. Do we, do we have to conceive of it that way? Right? Does everything have to be hierarchically ranked? Answer, yes, we know this. Who are the best colleges? Who are the best restaurants? Who are the best vacation spots? Who makes the best speakers? Who has the best pianos? Where's the best place to live? Who's got the best girlfriend, the best husband? Who's the handsomest man? Who's the best car? Everything we rank on these hierarchies. And then we associate ourselves in these hierarchies so that we know where we are. And we know the people we can look down on. And we know the people we can be envious of. And we throw rocks at those people if we get a chance, but we can definitely kick the other people because they're lower than us. And that brings us great sense of security. And this is the core, I think, of this whole slave dialectic, is if you let go of that, if you say, I neither want to be a master of some and subject to some, nor do I want to be a slave subjected to some, then where are you? Right? What the hell are you supposed to do? How do you know where you stand? How, how do you decide how's it, you know, how is it going? And the answer, of course, is where we started, which is you are the measure of all things. The only real measure is you. And I ponder this a lot, and I think extension of this is the small group of people who know you. Because I think it's important to keep that in mind because we're really good at lying to ourselves. It's one of our spectacular feats. I always say I don't care when people lie to me. I expect that. That's fine. That's human. That's great. But when I lie to me, oh, it pisses me off. <laughs> right? And I go, ah, oh, why am I lying to me again? And generally it's for the basest, most vile reasons. And I just think very much less of myself. I'm like, ah. But we're good at lying to ourselves. And so it's nice to have people that you trust to check in with or other ways of, of, of measuring. I was, I was talking to my friends the other day and I said I was at a blues club in Chicago and big, I think it's Kingston Mines it might have been called, and big blues clubs apparently quite flavorless. I'm not a huge fan of the blues actually, but there was live and it was all happening. This band was out and they played two or three songs and I turned to the people next to me and I said, wow, these guys are amazing. And they're like, oh, just wait. Well, it turned out the band leader had not been on stage yet. They were just warming up. <laughs> and then this guy walks out, and I'm like, oh, there's everyone claps. And, oh, he's, he's the band leader, right? Guy with the guitar here. And he played two notes. I swear, he played two notes. And it just transformed the whole thing. He just he brought them to a level they weren't even close to before. And the whole experience just blows up. And I'm like, yeah. That guy's better. Everybody in the band knows he's better than them. Everybody in the audience knows that he's better than them. 
We all, he's just better. He's really spectacularly excellent. And a free person can embrace that and say, yeah, that's inspirational. I love to see human greatness. I'm going to be a great blues guitarist, but I can aspire to greatness like that. It's not a threat to me. It's not a threat to the guys in the band. They're not confused. They're like, no, he's spectacular. He takes us to places we couldn't go without him. We love him for that. So it's not that it's wrong to look out in the world and see people and to get feedback, but it's also always got to be in those sorts of forms of going, ah, is this inspirational? Are those people really trying to help me? Or are they just trying to sort of, you know, they have other agendas? So when we're, we're thinking about this slave concept of being a slave or not being a slave, these are the sorts of, of issues we run in repeatedly. I mean, re- repeat to yourself. Anytime you say, I have to, or I must, or I can't, just get that, get that out of vocabulary. Get that out of your mind. Try not to say that, unless you're know, doing it consciously, but don't try to say it unconsciously. You know, when people talk about the value of things, say, well, what value do I place on it? Do I think it's great? Do I think it's meaningless? Am I indifferent to it? Do I just have no concept? And if you can start getting that into your mind as a necessary way of thinking, then you'll feel it. If you haven't already done this, you'll begin to feel how powerful this really is. You start going, hey, wait a second, why am I telling these people I can't do something? No, what I want to say is I'm just, I'm not going to. I refuse categorically to do this. No, oh, I'm sorry, I won't be able to. See, this is a little bit of a lie. And when you tell little lies all the time, as much as I'm a fan of lying, I think when you tell these little lies all the time on yourself, it's, it's a type of poison. And it eats at you. Because part of us really wants to communicate truthfully with everybody, or at least with some people, some of the time. And so this this poison, right, this makes us small and keeps us in this cycle. One thing it does, of course, as we all are, it makes us very suspicious of other people, right? Because we're lying all the time. We suspect other people of lying to us all the time. Well, that's a great place to be. Right? This is how one builds a healthy, beautiful community. We lie, they suspect us of lying. It's all working in a big circle. And so it's starting to just try and change our minds a little bit to start saying, hey, wait a second. You know, what, what's me? What, what are my values? Where does that come from? And last note on this, by the way, when you start doing this, what you'll find is you value things very differently, even from people you like immensely. And we're so trained into thinking that people we like, we should agree with, that this we feel this as dis- dissonance. This is not dissonance. This is the great richness of human community. You should not agree with the people you like all the time, quite the contrary. To expect that again is to say, oh, I need to be in a community where everybody reinforces me all the time. Not that there's anything wrong with a little reinforcement, but you should also have people saying, no, you're just daft. What the hell's wrong with you? That's crazy. I would never do that. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. But it may be great for you. You know, for me, not so much. For you, great. People always ask me, oh, what are you reading? I'm like, ah, you you probably don't want to read what I'm reading. (laughs) I said, read some really boring shit. I mean, I like it. But for most people, it's probably not very good. It just really isn't. I sometimes am reading things, and I don't even know why I'm reading them. Like, why am I reading this? Right? And I go, oh, I don't know. But, but that notion of going, just because I'm reading and I like it, and people, oh, well, maybe I'll like it. I'm like, yeah, maybe not. Maybe you will, but maybe not. But we shouldn't be hugely vested in whether you really do like what I'm reading or, or if, I, if you read it and you yeah, it's horrible, I should be like, yeah, at prob- I can see your point. I can see why somebody wouldn't like this. But that takes the freeing 
You, you have to then be standing in your own values and be able to say, no, I'm good. I don't need you to reinforce my values. I'm good with my values. I'm strong with them. Unless, and this is the key, and this is from Kaufman, unless someone points out that, no, your values are pretty flawed here, buddy, then you need to also have the opportunity and be open-minded enough to go, oh, let me ponder that. Yeah, you know, really, that is a terrible idea. Or, I've got that wrong. Or, Tom Clancy really is the greatest novelist of the 20th century. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not holding on to that last one, by the way. There's a good chance I'm not going to come around on that. Uh, but, you know, that, that, right, but to be able to at least be open, to listen to some music that you haven't heard before, to read something you haven't, to, read, not, to meet people, to go someplace where you wouldn't usually go. People always say, oh, I want to meet new people. And I'm like, well, go someplace you've never been with the kinds of people you never interact with. People are like, no, don't get crazy. Those people are weird. So, right, so what you want to do is go someplace and meet the same people you're with here. Right, that's, that's, that's how people travel, by the way. Don't let them kid you. you. You get a group of people who are the same as you, and you go someplace, and all the same people look at different shit together so they understand it the same, and they come home and say, wow, that was different, except for it was exactly the same as everything else I've ever done. But to go someplace with different people and actually interact with them, now that shit we're not doing. We won't have that. So, one, you are not a slave. Get that through your minds. The next two, play not work and joy not fear. Thank you very much.